Some of you know I've been having some problems with my left eye, and I still can't read from my left eye, so if you think I'm winking at you, I'm not. <laughs> but it is getting better, so thank you for praying. And uh, the doctors say it should be cleared up in the next couple of days, so I'm thankful for that. Pray with me one more time, if you would. God, thank you for your kindness and even allowing us to be here like this, a place where we can come with our families and a place where we can learn and we can be challenged, a place where we seek to exalt Christ together, where we find hope and encouragement. I would ask that you might help us to understand your word as we study it together, that you might encourage us that you might convict us where that's what we need, that you would do significant things in our midst so that this isn't just a religious exercise. Impress us with Christ and the hope that is found in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think today's sermon title qualifies as maybe the most bizarre. I think it's so bizarre that it's not in the bulletin. I was afraid they wouldn't print it. But the sermon title today is Underwear... Ashes and Jihad. Underwear, because the Mormon man I met recently believed that his special Mormon underwear would play a part in gaining a right standing for God for him. Ashes, because this Wednesday you will see some of your co-workers and your friends with black smudges on their heads as an act of penance that is supposed to help them in gaining a right standing before God. Jihad, because Islamic holy war is yet another supposed way to gain a right standing with God. And the list could go on and on and on and on with religious works and religious duties and religious things that people do in an attempt to gain a righteous standing before a righteous God. In fact, every religion I know of, in some way, shape, or form, teaches you that you as a sinner must do certain actions and certain works if God is ever going to accept you. You must earn righteousness if God is going to accept you. Every religion teaches this with the exception of one. The one and only religion that does not teach that you, the sinner, must do certain works to gain the favor of God in one way, shape, or form is biblical Christianity. And I'm not trying to be arrogant and I'm not trying to uh, boast in my way over some other way, but literally, I don't know of any other religion that says you cannot do anything works-wise to gain your own way in any way, shape, or form. It must be something that is done for you only by grace. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the uniqueness of Christianity. Hopefully not to be arrogant, hopefully to be humbled, but we are going to talk about how it does stand out like, like a beautiful thumb not a sore thumb, and how it is unique. And so what we'll do this morning in Romans 10, 
verses 5 to 13, is look at three of the marks of biblical Christianity that distinguish biblical Christianity from every other religion. Three distinguishing marks of Christianity that are really hope-filled and encouraging, and they all have to do with Christ. If you're new to the Bible, it's on page 810 of that Bible that we may have given you even today. That's where Romans 10 is found. Let me preview those marks for you right now in case you're taking notes. The first mark, number one, it avoids spiritual futility. It avoids spiritual futility. That's in verse 5. The second mark of biblical Christianity that distinguishes it, number two, it acknowledges the completed work of Jesus. It acknowledges the completed or perfect work of Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. And the third mark of biblical Christianity that makes it distinct, it assures all who believe. It assures all who believe. Verses 8 to 13. It avoids, it acknowledges, it assures. And if you didn't get that, we'll look at each one of them as we go. We're studying the book of Romans as a church on Sunday mornings, and so that's why we are in Romans 10 this morning, and we'll be in Romans 10 next week as well. If you're new to Romans, maybe you're new to Omaha Bible Church, uh, maybe one thing I would recommend to you, maybe even if you're not new and you just need to remember the big picture, uh, there is an online message called a Jet Tour of Romans. Uh, that is quite helpful, I think. So if you go to the website, go to the audio section, and just uh, search Jet Tour, you'll find a Jet Tour of Romans, and you get the big picture in 45 minutes, and I think it's, it's pretty helpful. Um, so again, just to help bring you along a little bit. But Romans is about what it means to be right with God, what it takes to, to be accepted by God, and, and that means it has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. And that's really what we're focusing on this morning. The first distinguishing mark is that it avoids spiritual futility. Look at verse 5 with me of Romans 10 and see what I'm getting at. It says in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Moses, representing the Old Testament, Moses tells you about God's law. He tells you about righteousness. And he tells you, rather helpfully, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's helpful. I mean, that's, that's a good statement. That's, that's a truism. If you do what God says, you'll, you'll live. If you obey God, you'll have righteousness. That's a good statement in and of itself. But it's not good news. It's not good news for you, and it's not good news for me. It's not good news for anybody because of what? Because of sin. This is not good news if we now don't have the ability to do God's law perfectly as he calls us. This is, this is not helpful and hopeful at all. And Romans is assuming that we know that. In fact, the first three chapters of Romans, you might want to go to chapter 3 just by way of review. He's assuming that we, we've read this and we understand this, but Romans 1, 2, and 3 argues with this strong kind of lawyer-like arguing, making the point that it doesn't matter who you are. 
The fact of the matter is, we've all sinned. And, and there's a fly in the ointment, if you will. We could never do exactly as God says because there's a sin problem. Sin has permeated everything. We've rebelled against God and, and, and now we're no longer able because of the sin tainting. In fact, Romans 3, the, the sin section in Romans 3, it's Romans 1.18 to 3.20, it comes to this, this crashing, unhelpful, or I should say unhelpful halt. Look at 3.20. it says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or righteous, is what it means, in his sight. So remember Romans 3.20 when you're reading Romans 10.5. Sure, if you do what God says, you'll have life. But the fact of the matter is he's already established the point that we're all sinners and we don't do what God says and so we don't have life. And this creates a huge problem. You could also write down Galatians 2.16, by works of the law, no one will be righteous or justified. So think about it with me, if you would. The most devout, religious, committed person you can think of. They do not have the ability to keep God's law the way God calls for us to keep His law. That's the argument of Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans, a book that's about the gospel, about hope. But before we understand the good news, we've got to understand the bad news. There's a pervasive tainting. There's corruption at the core. Romans 3.10 is such a downer. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not, not one. Romans 3.23, we know it well if we've been Christians very long. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't meet the standard. And so, it's futile. Religion is futile. It's not going to work out because we've already proven that we're not righteous. It's futile. And think about this. He's talking about the law of Moses. In Romans 10.5, the legitimate law of God. And if we can't keep the legitimate law of God, if we could, then we would make it, but we can't because we're sinners. If that's futile, think about all of the other pseudo-laws that come from all these other different kinds of religions or the laws that we make up that we're going to keep ourselves. That's double futility. If you, you, you can't gain it by keeping the law of God, certainly you can't keep it by keeping some other law that's not even the law of God. It's futile. You know, religion for us is like a spiritual treadmill. I hate treadmills, by the way. I'm on a treadmill too often. I hate treadmills. Never ends and you never go anywhere. It is such a downer and it's so hard. Well, this is religion for us. Religion is you being handcuffed to a spiritual treadmill. And you're going 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 and you go nowhere. You're trapped. I can't think of a better illustration. Maybe it's because I have such a hatred of treadmills. (laughs) It's treadmill hell for me. (laughs) But what does religion say? Hey, Pat. Just... Do these things, and God will accept you. Well, how many of them must I do? Well, I don't know. Just keep doing them. Well, how much is enough? Well, we're not exactly sure. Just make sure you're doing them really, really well at the end of your life. 
Pat, come and do this, you know, special food laws. Pat, come and do the ashes. Pat, wear special Mormon underwear. Pat, 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 pat. It's futility. It's not going to get me anywhere. Pat, keep the Old Testament law. Try as though I may. It's already been proven that the final nail has already been in the coffin or casket. Romans 3.20. It's futile. Christianity stands apart and says, you know, this is not the way. It's not by keeping the law. In fact, we're going to get to it in a second, but, but he's assuming that we know this. Look at 10.4, if you would, which is chapter 10, verse 4 of Romans. We looked at last time. He's assuming we already know this, and so we can come to these conclusions. But 10.4 is so awesome. The one place where you can go to get off of that treadmill. Look at 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law, or the culmination, or the, the climax, or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. See, we do need righteousness. We need perfection to everyone who believes. What he's been talking about is believing in Christ. How do we stop the madness? How do we, we, we stop, uh, how do we get off the treadmill that, that says if you just do all of these right things always and forever, it'll be okay when we know in fact we, we're, we're already smoked. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is, is not doing all the stuff. In one word, it's Christ. It is Christ. That's what Romans 10.4 is saying. For righteousness. Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. And now the futility, the shackles of futility are torn off and, and we, we cling to Him and Him alone. This is biblical Christianity. No more futility. <sighs> Freedom! We're free. This is what the biblical book of Galatians is about in so many ways. Freedom from all of that. I'm no longer being manipulated by religious leaders or my own religious fallen heart. The answer is Christ. Perfect righteousness. <laughs> it makes Christianity unique and different. Let's move on to number two. The second mark that distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religion on the planet and therefore is so hopeful. Number two, it acknowledges the completed work of Jesus. It acknowledges the completed work of Jesus, verses 6 and 7. Look at set 6 where it says, But the righteousness based on faith, which according to verse 4, that's the righteousness of Christ, right? The righteousness based on faith, it's faith in Christ and His righteousness, says, which is kind of weird because you don't think the righteousness based on faith talks, but, he, but he's, he, he's personifying it to, to, to sort of bring out the drama more. That, that it, then it has a message for you. Trusting in Christ and Christ alone for righteousness, the righteousness you need, it's going to tell you something. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or verse 7, or, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Don't say that. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those two verses, and I only read those two verses, I kind of you know, get a bald spot right here from scratching my head going... I don't quite get it. In fact, I think a lot of these verses in this section are some of those kinds of verses. Unless you read the whole thing, and you read the whole thing again, and you read the whole thing, and you read the whole thing again, you read the flow of understanding, and then all of a sudden, it makes more sense. What is he getting at? 
What is he getting at here? Well, first of all, he's using Old Testament wording, and he's assuming that the Jews who were paying attention to this originally would understand. We're not Jews, so we need a little extra help. We have to read it a few more times. But the idea is religious works cause us to go to these great efforts. We've got to do, 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 do. Perform, perform, perform. We've got to try this. What can I do to work my way to God? And he uses the image of going up to heaven to get Christ. Religious works, I've got, I've got to get my Savior. Or going to the other extreme, going down to the abyss, the place of the dead, to get Christ there. The idea is a simple one. It's we try, 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 try. And he's saying, you you don't ever talk that way when you're trusting in Christ and Christ's righteousness. You don't go there if you've already committed to Romans 10, 4. Don't think in those terms of trying to gain your own righteousness. Think about it for a second. When When we're trying, oh God, if I just do these things and try these things and commit to these things and go without this food and if I maybe join a monastery or I mean, whatever I'm going to do to really make sure I get righteousness. It's like we're trying to bring Christ down. And the fact of the matter is, He already came down. Right? Or we're trying to bring Christ up. And the fact of the matter is, He already came up. And He did everything in between. See, the incarnation is the fancy theological word for God becoming a man so that He could do a work on our behalf. That's God coming to earth in the person of Christ. Christ has already come down. He rose again from the dead. He already came up. And it's assuming everything sandwiched in the middle is true as well. So stop saying, oh, I've got to try, I've got to do this, I've got to give all my money away, I've got to try to do all this and that and the other thing, and if I just try harder, practically, here's what you're doing. You're denying history. You're a historical revisionist. You're acting like Jesus never came and lived a perfect life on your behalf, obeying the law, earning righteousness for you. That's the in-between part. And that He never went to the cross and absorbed the just wrath of God that you deserve. And that He never rose again from the dead. That's practically what we're saying. So He's saying, righteousness, my faith, doesn't try to bring Christ down. It's already happened. Righteousness, by faith in Christ, doesn't try to bring Christ up through performance and religious works. It's already happened. So maybe you should try this with your friends. You have a friend who, who maybe who says they believe in Christ, but man, they've got to do... I need space. <laughs> they, 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 they're just committed to thinking they have to do all the extras so they gain righteousness. They have to do acts of penance. Try this maybe. Say, I thought, I thought you believed Jesus came to earth. Don't you belong to a church that's really big on the virgin birth? I thought you you celebrated Christmas. Or, doesn't your church have an Easter service? This won't work with everybody, but it'll work with people who say they name the name of Christ. Well, of course we do. What What are you implying? Take them to the passage. 
you're acting like Jesus never came. Because in Matthew chapter 1, it says He came to save His people from their sins. Not to give them new abilities so they could do it themselves. You're acting like you don't believe in the resurrection that gives new life because of what He did. It's masterful. It is masterful. But when we think in our minds the way to get righteousness, the righteousness that we need, because we do need it, is by efforting. We're practical antichrists. We're practical historical revisionists, if I'm making things up, but you get the idea. We're denying the sufficiency of Christ or we're denying the historicity of Christ. And many people don't want to do that. So it goes from being a passage that I just scratch my head over so you read it and you read it and you read it more and you read it in context and you think that is a great passage. Even though it's tough to get past his Old Testament picture, quoting Old Testament verses, that is a striking, awesome passage. Finally, for this point too, let me say that when we think that religious efforting works, gains us righteousness, we insult Christ to the core. If none of the other, in other words, have made sense, that's what he's saying. That's what he means when he says, don't say that. Don't think in those terms. Because if it's based upon me, it means it's not all based upon him. That's just an insult, and that doesn't make any sense. That's the negative side. Now for the positive side. Look at uh, number three, third mark of biblical Christianity that distinguishes it from other religions. It assures all who believe. It assures all who believe. He gives assurance. I don't know of any other religion that truly, genuinely gives some kind of sure assurance. Look at verse 8. We'll do 8 to 13. But what does it say? Still personifying as if this gospel talks. But what, but what does it say? The, the gospel of righteousness by faith in Christ. The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now that sounds good, but now I'm ready for a bald spot on this side of my head. Again, these are hard verses, and in part because he's using all kinds of Old Testament quotations and all kinds of Old Testament verbiage. Now, remember, there's a reason why, because remember, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are dealing primarily with Israel, with the Jews, and why they reject Christ. Now, we can, in principle, apply it to any other religion, and that's what I've been doing, but there's a reason why he keeps using all this kind of Old Testament talk that we're not that familiar with. But again, if you read it, and you read it in context, and you keep reading it in context, before you know it, you think, I, I, I think I've got it. You don't go to these great efforts to go and get Christ and bring Him. 
You don't go to these great efforts to go and get Christ and bring him back up. Works, 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 works. Because of the perfect work of Christ that is already done is what he's getting at here. Notice he says, the word is near you. The gospel, the truth about Christ, it's near you. And then he says, using uh, other ways to explain near, he says, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. All emphasizing the same idea. What is he saying? It couldn't get any closer. You don't try to get to heaven to bring Christ down. You don't try to go to the abyss to try to bring Christ up. You don't, how about this, spiritually, lift a finger. Christ did all of the work. The gospel, the truth about Christ is near you. In fact, it's so near, it's in your mouth. It's so near, it's in your heart. I mean, it just doesn't get any closer. That's his idea. There is not a spiritual finger left to be lifted. That's what he's getting at. How do you gain righteousness? Not by doing this spiritually. Ah. How do you gain from the righteous work of Christ? It's near. couldn't get any nearer. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And he's going to talk about what he means by that. It's just a matter of believing, which, which is what your heart does. You don't lift a spiritual finger. It's not a work. And, and, and the natural outflow of that is you're going to open your mouth and you say, I believe the truth about Jesus. Not a work either. I love, I, I love it when hard passages aren't so hard anymore. He goes on to say in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth, you agree with God, you just say what's true about Jesus, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Just notice the the sureness of it. There's nothing left to be done. Nothing left to be done. If you believe in your heart, that's all you do. You you trust in Him and Him alone, and and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll, you'll be saved. No other religion offers anything even close to that. It really sets it apart. It gives Him all of the honor and all of the glory and none to us. Thus, there's maybe a reason why every other religion is different. I would never invent a religion like this that gave me no glory. I at least want a chunk. I want a piece. makes Christianity unique. Now, sometimes uh, we've probably fallen into the trap, and I don't want to get too off target here, but we've fallen into the trap to making this like a two-step process we need to go through. You have to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and if you do these two things, then God will save you, almost like their works. Please remember this verse in light of all of Romans. All of Romans is just beat the gong, the drum, over and over and over again. You're justified by faith, justified by faith, justified by faith, justified by faith. Belief, which is a synonym for faith. Belief, belief, belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We have an axe. The way to be saved is by faith in Christ. That's what Romans has argued to the core. So he's clearly not giving a two-step plan here. I think essentially he's saying the same thing in different ways. Or we could perhaps, as theologians would want us to do, say if your justification, salvation is by faith and only by faith in Christ, but when that happens, you open your mouth. 
It's just a natural thing. If you're believing in Christ, you confess Him as Lord. You're, you're willing to take the huge risk in first century culture to say Jesus is Lord. You just, you just offended all of your Jewish family and friends. Oh, and by the way, perhaps if you had some Roman family and friends, you just offended all of them because Caesar is Lord. And so the, the Jews, the Romans and the Jews were fighting about who was Lord, and now you're going to go out on a limb and say, Jesus is Lord. And now they all hate you. <laughs> and there's great evidence that you believed in your heart. <laughs> because no one, apart from truly believing that, would be wanting to say such a thing. And that's what goes on. If you believe it in your heart, you're going to profess it with your mouth and you're going to acknowledge that. It's just going to go hand in hand. But even in our context, remember Romans 10.4, it's not tied to confession. It's tied to belief. Righteousness is for those who believe. But you see that throughout Romans. Assurance is tied to believing in Christ. Which shows up in confession. We say what's true about Him. Look at verses 10 and 12. For... With the heart one believes and is justified, declared perfect, declared righteous, based upon the righteousness of Christ. We've seen that. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, those are inseparable because the Bible says you're saved by faith. Ephesians 2. So he's using these synonymously as partners, if you will. Verse 11, for the Scripture says, quoting Isaiah 28:16, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Hope you're getting the flavor for the universality of this. Everyone who believes in Him. And he's going to talk about how it's not just for the Jews, it's also for the Greeks. Everyone who believes in Him. It's interesting where at the end of verse 10, no, end of verse 11, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. He quoted that same Isaiah text in 9.33 earlier. See that? It's the same text. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now He brings it up again here. And the image is, Jesus is this rock. And some stumble over Him. They say, it can't be. It's too good to be true. I can't swallow that because of the dagger it sticks in my pride because I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep the law. I'm a good person. I'm moral. And for those, Jesus is a rock that they trip over. Jesus is in the way. But the same Jesus, as it says here in our text, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. The same rock is the rock you cling on to and you grab onto and you hang on to and that giant wave, if you will, comes smashing and you're safe. You're safe in Christ. You won't be put to shame because there is righteousness in clinging to Him for His righteousness. It's a great picture. And by the way, the negative is assumed the shame will come if you think it's by the treadmill religion. And you find out in the end, I didn't go anywhere. It was all a sham. Got to cling to Christ and Christ alone. And then I've got stability and I've got sureness and confidence that this is the right thing. 
everyone who believes in him. Look at verse 12 with me, if you would, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all, emphasis on all again, who call on him. Verse 13 then says, For everyone, just like the all, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Assurance, 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 and it's assurance that's a broad assurance. And by the way, the Jews would have been bugged by this, apart from the grace of God. Everyone who calls on Him, everyone who calls on Him will be saved. All who call on Him. Because again, their mindset is going to be, we did all this stuff. We've been tenacious. We've been committed. Surely the only way to be saved is to come through us and to come through the nation of Israel. And he's saying, no. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's not fair. We did all the stuff. All the stuff is tainted with sin. Christ's perfect righteousness is what enables this to be a message that is for all who would believe, no matter who they are, because it has nothing to do with the sinners. It has everything to do with His perfect righteousness, which means it can be for all who believe. And that would have rubbed them the wrong way. Just like it rubs some religious people the wrong way. In fact, most religious people the wrong way, whether they're Jews or not. You're not going to tell me that that guy could be saved and be, I know what he's done, and I've lived a good life. Well, that's problem number one. There's a huge misunderstanding there. Think how they would have thought about Paul, the apostle. Think about that in the early church. He's the Christian killer. He's the guy when in the early chapters of the book of Acts when they're going to stone Stephen. You know, they're waiting for him. He does this. Kill him. Paul believes in Christ and is saved, spared from the shame, declared righteous. Would have been a problem. But the reason it's not a problem is because it's all based upon His perfect righteousness to begin with. This is hard for some of you because maybe you're not religious, maybe you're not, maybe that's not your problem, it's because you're, you're, you're not religious and you think to yourself, I don't see how this can work for me because how could I ever be forgiven? Pat, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how, what I've thought about doing. But the answer is the same. If you've got guilt up to your eyeballs, the answer is the same. Because it's not about you anyway. We, we all know you're a sinner. You know, hi, my name is Pat. I have a problem. <laughs> you're supposed to say, hi, Pat. <laughs> you know, I'm a big, fat sinner who deserves to go to hell forever. You say, oh, you have such bad self-esteem. <laughs> yeah, that's probably step one to understanding the gospel. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7, and 8, and 9. You get the idea. 
It's not about your guilt and it's not about what you've done being a problem. The whole point is that Christ is perfect in His righteousness. That's why He came to this world. He came here to live a perfect life because my name is Pat and I have a problem. And He obeyed God's perfect law for me to a T. He loved God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength and He loved His neighbor as Himself. That's a summary of the law. Because I don't. And haven't. And then on the cross, He absorbed the undiluted wrath of God because the wages of sin is death. So payment is made, satisfied. And then He rose again from the dead, number one, proving that it worked, that God was satisfied. And number two, the Bible teaches us, so that we could now live new lives, lives of thankfulness, lives of worship, lives of, yes, now obedience as acts of worship, not acts of payment. So if you're thinking, it's too good to be true, I just don't know how it could be. It says all who believe, but I don't don't think I'm in that sphere of savability. The key is seeing how great Christ is. If you see how great He is, then all of a sudden, you don't think about how bad your sin is. By the way, the Jews would have had one other huge problem with this, and then we'll end But this is pretty important. We can't skip this. Look at verse 13 again, if you would. Let's sharpen our focus a little bit and not miss this. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, let's be technical here and acknowledge, okay, this is from Joel 2.32. You just jot that down. But Joel 2.32 in the Hebrew Old Testament uses the word for Lord, the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the, the title for God. The most highly esteemed title for God about God's self-existence. It, it, it is who He is at the very core of His being to the point where Jews even to this day don't even like to say the word. They don't even like to write it. They'll skip it, abbreviate, use a synonym. If you want to be fancy and theological, this is the ineffable tetragrammaton. Didn't use that first hour, so you guys have to pay extra before you leave. You're the smarter hour, right? (laughs) The ineffable tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four-letter name for God. Tetra, four letters. Yahweh in Hebrew is four letters. It is so holy, you don't even say this name. Now, the Bible never says that, but that's where they took it. Well, verse 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. That's not so offensive because that would be Joel 2.32. But put your finger on verse 13. Put your finger on verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Dun, dun, dun. You know? He's already established who He means in this context by Lord. He means Jesus. 
Jesus is Lord, dot, dot, dot. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. That's what you confess when you make your confession of faith that, because that's what you're believing in your heart. That this couldn't be done by a member of the human race because the human race is tainted with sin. We need God to incarnate. God to become one of us and to do it all for us. Pretty, pretty radical kind of statement for him to make. And I love it that he does it. He doesn't soft sell. He doesn't, well, let's, let's kind of bury the deity of Christ thing until we get the Jews to sign off on it. Good marketing. And then we'll spring it on them later that he's God. Because by then they'll see us and like us and they'll stick. He just lays it right out there. Jesus is Yahweh. That's how he can be a perfect Savior. That's how we can have assurance. You need Jesus to be Yahweh. I need Jesus to be Yahweh because we're all in Adam and we need someone to come from outside. And so in so many ways, our assurance comes from the perfect righteousness of Christ, but that's traced back to our assurance comes from the fact that Jesus is Lord. And so we're willing to talk about Him. We're willing to boast in Him. And that would have been a big, big deal for those believers, as it should be for us. Finally, I, I just love, love, love what Paul says in Philippians 3.9. You can just listen if you'd like. He says, as Christians, we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. It's not what we're banking on. It's not tied to special holy underwear or something else. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know why I'm so sure that I'm going to heaven? You want to know how, so, how I can be so confident that, that God is now my friend and not my enemy because I have God's righteousness credited to my account. It's so good. It's so awesome. And it is anything but arrogant because he's already established the fact that to see it, you've got to see that you're incapable and you're a sinner and there's only one thing that you can do by the grace of God and that's to believe in someone who did it for you. It's to believe in Christ. It's awesome. We need righteousness, but what we need is alien righteousness, foreign righteousness. We need God's righteousness credited to our account, and then God obviously is accepting us. How about this? What a great, 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 great love this God has had for us. This is the key to understanding the love of God, quite frankly. God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us to give us His righteousness so we could be acceptable. This is so good. And by the way, this is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101 minus the ineffable tetragrammaton. It's just the basics of the gospel. Just seeing how great Christ is and how much God loves us as sinners. But we do see how different authentic Christianity is. 
It really, really, really is unique and different. And let's praise God for that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you once again for today. Thank you that it is all about Christ and it is about His perfection credited to us by faith in Him. For those who are here today who have never trusted in Christ and Christ alone, God, only you can grant such a faith and such a repentance, but I certainly would ask that you would do that, that they would sense what it means to be forgiven, they would sense what it means to be right with you, and they would be rejoicing with the rest of us. And for believers who are here, God, that this would just fuel our love for Christ, that we would want to go further and deeper into the love of Christ so that it might show up in the way that we talk to others and the way that we do ministry and the way that we act at our jobs and in this community. All of this for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.